If you just arrived, my name is Pastor Mike. I'm the pastor here at Image Church, and we're delighted to have you as a guest and visitor and just to kind of fill you in on what we're doing. We've started a new sermon series recently through the book of Exodus, and we're calling it Following Jesus, Leading Like Moses. So we're looking at leadership lessons as followers of Jesus through the life and journey of Moses in the book of Exodus. And so it's just a phenomenal book of the Bible. There's so much going on there that is complementary of spiritual studies in leadership as followers of Jesus. So it's an excellent study. How many of you have ever asked the question, why God? I'm pretty sure most, if not all of you, have asked that question at some time in your life. Perhaps you're here this morning and that's the question on your heart. Why, God? But in addition to whatever experience or situation is prompting you to ask that question, your beliefs about that question are equally important. Many people believe when they experience something in life that causes them to turn up in, in perhaps anger or despair, and they say, why God? They don't recognize that with that experience is tangled up theological beliefs. That is, beliefs about God that may or may not be right, and therefore can actually change how you experience those difficult times. Such ideas about perhaps I alone am asking this question. When we ask why God, many times we're asking it out of a place of isolation. We feel like we're alone. If I were just like this follower of Jesus or that follower of Jesus, I wouldn't be asking this question right now. Others still believe it's not spiritual to ask that question. They've actually been told, well, that, that's disrespectful to God. You shouldn't say that. You, you should, that. That expresses doubt. You shouldn't doubt God. Agreed. But what happens when you do? Because as we're going to see this morning, even the great leader Moses expressed doubt. And Scripture never paints Moses as the kind of man who is not a true follower of God. And yet this man who is a true follower of God, one of the greatest leaders and examples in history, nevertheless, finds himself in seasons of life where he asked the question from the depths of his heart, why God? And so this morning as we look at Exodus chapter 5, we are going to see what God through His Holy Word has to say to us when we go through such seasons when we ask that question, why God? So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Exodus chapter 5. We'll be reading all 23 verses. I'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. Please follow along with me now as I read God's Word. Exodus 5, beginning in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord 
that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go, get yourselves straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was, no, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick, both yesterday and today, as before? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, Make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given you. Yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, You shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning because we are in need of your leadership. Lord, I'm so thankful for the many leaders that you've put in our lives over the years. But Lord, as we see here, even the greatest of human leaders, even the greatest amongst us, will fail at times. Even the greatest amongst us can ask, why God? Why me? Why did you send me? Why aren't you doing what you said you would do? Things were better before you called me. 
Lord, I just pray that anyone here who's struggling, Lord, that they would find encouragement. That they would be lifted up. I pray that You would give us eyes to see the people that are following us. Maybe we're here this morning and we don't think that we are a leader necessarily. But if we stop to think about it, we have children looking up to us. Some of us have grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren looking up to us, following us. We may have co-workers, colleagues, employees looking at us, family members, neighbors, people looking to us. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would be gracious and responsible leaders that point people to Jesus. And so, lead us, I pray, in the name of Your Son and for Your glory now. Amen. So again, I'm going to be talking about four different lessons of leadership that we find in Exodus chapter 5. And as I said in my prayer, I think it's so important that you're open to the idea that you are a leader. Some of you positionally, you know that's what you are. I am a leader. It's, it's in my title. That's what people call me. They express that that's how they look at me. But many times we are leaders over people that we do not even recognize are following us. So I think it's so important that if you recognize you're a follower of Jesus, that means you are put in a position to be a spiritual leader of somebody else. It doesn't mean you're the most mature Christian in the room. It doesn't mean you know the Bible as well as everybody else. It doesn't mean you've got all your sins taken care of and you're not doing this anymore and you are doing all these good things. But what it means is if you know Jesus to the many people in the world that do not know Him, you are in a position of spiritual influence. That they're actually looking to you and saying, well, if I were to become a Christian, if I were to know this God, that He would look something like what you show Him to be. And so you're all called to be leaders. And as I've mentioned, most of the criteria of leaders in the New Testament are just what all Christians are supposed to be. All Christians are supposed to love God. All Christians are supposed to engage in the mission of God. All Christians are to seek first God's kingdom. All Christians are to put away lying and filthiness and depravity. They're, they're to put all of that away. We simply say our leaders cannot be positional leaders unless they've actually done that adequately. But everyone is called to do these things. So you're all spiritual leaders in some capacity of influence. So please hear these points as applying to all of you. Number one, the first thing, the first lesson we learn is this. A spiritual leader can be right about God's general call but wrong on the specific method and timing of that call. Look at verses 1 and 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, 
The people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So Moses is right about God's general call in his life. This episode and the seeming failure that ensues, because that's what it looks like, it's what it feels like, feels like failure. But we know that it's not. Because we have the advantage of seeing the end of the story. Many times in life, we can experience failure. But if we knew what the next chapter of the story was, we would actually know that wasn't a failure. That was a necessary step to success as defined by God. Many times in our lives, we simply don't have that. So when we experience what feels like failure, that's, that's how we, we pontificate and say that is failure and cannot be used towards success in any meaningful way. But we see here Moses is right about his general call. But I do want to suggest Moses was wrong about the specific method and timing of that call. Let's start with the timing. Quite obviously in this narrative, Moses' timeline and God's timeline are incongruent. Moses thinks he's going to walk right in there to Pharaoh's office. No appointment. Bust open the door. Pharaoh's on the phone making a huge New York City real estate deal. I don't know. Yeah, President Trump. You know, he's making this big New York City real estate deal, and he just bursts open the door, comes in, no appointment. The secretary's like, get out. No, you don't have an appointment. You can't do this. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And the guy's like, security. And he's yanked out. Moses thinks what God has called him to do is going to happen immediately. That's how Moses feels. Moses is wrong. Moses is wrong about God's timing. It's so important that we make a distinction between God's call on our lives and the timing of the call. Because I don't know about you, I conflate the two many times. I believe God has called me to do something. He wants to do something. Something's good. And therefore, it must happen today. Or by the 30th, or by the 1st, or by the 15th, right? That's my timing. And then if it doesn't happen, what I often do is not say, oh, well, the timing was off. I was just wrong on the timing. Many times when the timing is wrong, I, the whole calling is thrown in doubt. Am I even called to do this at all? Maybe I'm not even meant to be here. I, I thought we'd be at this stage of our relationship. Maybe our whole relationship is just off. Maybe I wasn't meant to do this with my life because I thought it would be done by now. Don't confuse God's general call on your life with His timing. I would, I would actually say from my experience and from my understanding of the Bible, many times, maybe most of the time, our sense of timing and God's are not the same. And that's actually something you should bear in mind and get used to. You have little timetables for your life and what God's got to do by what season and by what age and all this stuff. And God's often not going to meet that because He never agreed to in the first place. Before the world was even made, God had a plan. His plan is the one that counts. 
Sometime in history, here we come. We come into existence, and then we make little plans, and we expect God to change His eternal plans for us. And it doesn't work that way. So understand that when your timing is wrong, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, and that He hasn't even called you to do that general thing. But there's something else going on here. I actually want to suggest that Moses' method is also wrong. Now, this becomes clear when you go back to Exodus chapter 3 and you look very carefully at what God told Moses to do. If you read Genesis 3 quickly, you just sit down with your morning coffee and it's devotional. You're not doing deep study. And you just breeze over it. And you come to chapter 5, and you see what Moses did, and you breeze over it. You might think, well, he got the gist of it. But if you actually look at the details, you find that Moses kind of disobeyed here. He did things wrong. He did not do what God told him to do. If you go back to chapter 3, you're going to see a few things. Number one, God told Moses to go into Pharaoh with the elders of Israel. Note that, note that and look that up later in Exodus 3. God told him to go into Pharaoh, not alone with Aaron, like there are a couple of big shots, but with the elders of Israel. When we look at chapter 5, where are the elders? They're not there. Moses apparently, for whatever reason, I don't need to do that. God said go in with all these people, and I said nah. I'm kind of a hot shot. I know what's going on. I know what my gifts are. I I don't need their approval or their validation. I'm just going to go right in, kick the door open, and that's what's going to happen. So Moses disobeys there. Secondly, God actually, even though God is God and He could do this, He actually tells Moses to ask nicely. He actually says, request. Don't tell Pharaoh Don't tell him it's going to be this way. Ask him and use the word, please. Please, may my people go. Moses does not ask. He tells. He tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And the word in Hebrew, na, na means please, is gone in Exodus 5. He does not ask please. He does not ask at all. He just tells him how it's going to be. Now, why would Moses do this? Is he, is he a jerk? Is he just one of these people? I don't think so. I actually recognize a little bit in myself what I see Moses doing. See, the context of this, what precedes it? Exodus 3 and 4, God has just met him. God showed up in a burning bush. God spoke to him. He knows he experienced God. God did miracles right in front of his eyes. He turned a staff into a snake and back into a staff. God took his hand and made it leprous with an incurable disease and then he healed it again. And then God predicted, you're going to go to the elders of Israel and they're going to believe you. And he went to the elders of Israel and they believed him. He's like riding this wave of endless success. He can't imagine that it's going to change. It's just going to keep going and going and going. And those little things God wanted me to do, say please, ask, don't tell, don't just do it yourself like your hot shot, bring in the elders with you. It's like, ah, yeah, yeah, that's all nice stuff. Don't need to do that. He skips by all of that. 
Sometimes when God blesses us with success, we become arrogant. That is why sometimes failure is vital for our spiritual growth. Sometimes we need to be reminded of who we are. We need to be reminded of who God is. We need to be taught to be faithful in the little things. The little things that you say to yourself, it's not a big deal. Who's going to know? They don't do it. They don't do it. Why should I do it? We can be tempted to become unfaithful in the little things. Furthermore, he omits what God told him to say. In Exodus 3, God says, ask, pretty please, with sugar on top, can we go out for a pilgrimage, a religious feast, for three days? In Exodus 5, he doesn't say that at all, at least initially. He just says, let my people go completely and utterly. Moses has ignored or disobeyed or omitted, for whatever reason, all of the things God has told him to say. And what's quite clear is he thinks it's going to work. I've got the general call down. I know I'm on God's side. I know Pharaoh is the bad guy, so I'm just going to win. Doesn't matter what I do. And then all of that, that rosy idealism that he had, poof, it is absolutely gone in verse 2. The response from Pharaoh is not the one Moses was expecting. Who is the Lord? that I should obey His voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. That big, puffy cloud of dreams, that bubble that Moses had, it's just been popped. Now we see Moses backpedaling and he's renegotiating, but he's doing so from a position of weakness. He's already been compromised. He disobeyed God and he offended Pharaoh. And once somebody is offended, you can't just backpedal and go, oh, now I'm going to do it the nice diplomatic way. No, it's gone. So look at what Moses finally says in verse 3. He says, so they said the God of the Hebrews, he used the word Israelite earlier. God said to use the word Hebrews. Little thing, but he omitted it. Now he's suddenly remembering the God of the Hebrews has met us. Now he says it in verse 3, please. Now he says, please. Now he says three days journey and not completely let us go into the wilderness. But it is too late. Moses has not done what God has called him to do in the specifics. And so we can see that a spiritual leader can be right about God's general call. I am called to be the leader of this family. I am called to be the leader of this church. I am called to be the leader of this business. I am called to be the leader in this area of life. But you can be wrong about the specifics. And so humility in a leader is a virtue. We have to recognize we're not compromising our call. And some people will look at leaders and if they're wrong in the specifics, then they, they doubt the general call. And that's sometimes when leaders get very defensive. And now they're unwilling to look at where they're wrong because the whole thing, their whole calling, their whole position has been called into question. But just know this. When you're wrong about God's timing or you're wrong about God's methods, it doesn't mean you are positionally in the wrong place entirely. 
You can be who God wants you to be, doing basically what he wants you to do, but the specifics can be wrong. And leaders are humble enough to acknowledge that. Number two, a spiritual leader knows that faithfulness to God's call does not mean things will come easy and, in fact, may become more difficult as a result. I've shared this before. Maybe you've heard this, but in my Christian experience, I've heard people say this quite often. You know it was the Lord because it was easy. You know it was the Lord because it was easy, because I didn't have to do anything. Now, there's some truth to that, right? The idea that God can simply act miraculously, immediately, and simply do everything and you did nothing. Yes, of course, I believe in that kind of a God. I believe in a God of the dead who speaks worlds into existence out of nothing. So I, I get what you're saying. God can do that. What I have a problem with is the idea that that's God's M.O. That if you follow Jesus, he's promising you a pain-free, struggle-free, trial-free, death-free life. He's not. That's never been true. Old Testament scholar Doug Stewart says it this way. The presumption that a good God never lets dangerous or harmful events happen to His people, false as it has always been, is nevertheless a very ancient belief. Think about that. That's not a new occurrence. When, when people are like, why God? I thought if, if we were good, if I was in a right relationship with you, if, if I just responded to your call, then life would be rosy. That's a very, very ancient belief. And it has always been wrong. Obedience to God does not mean things will get easier. Many times, like here, things get harder. When you decide as a single person that I'm not going to get in a dating relationship or a marriage with somebody who's not a Christian, does dating get easier or harder? It gets harder. When you suddenly say, yeah, like 90% of the people I meet, I no longer can date them now. I can't marry them. When people in business are doing unethical things, illegal things, and, but you know in, in that industry or, or with these people, that's just normal. Like That's what you have to do to make it. And you suddenly become a Christian, you grow a conscience, and you're like, I can't do that anymore. How's the system going to treat you when you do that? Many times following God means things are going to get harder. And the people of God need to know that in advance. Because you'll need the knowledge of that to not be utterly cast into disillusionment and doubt. If you believe in advance that if it's God, it's all going to be easy, then of course, when it's not, you think God's not in it, I'm not supposed to do it, it's not good, I sinned, or something like that. But if you acknowledge that many times, many times, when you choose to obey, it's going to get harder, then you really have to sit for a moment and think about why you do what you do in the first place. Do I really believe in what I'm doing? Or am I only doing it because it's expedient? Do I believe my values, my faith, my belief is worth dying for? 
Or is it just something I hold rather loosely and like the weather, I recognize it changes? See, some things in life are worth dying for. And if there's nothing worth dying for, there's nothing worth living for. I think that's why there's so many people in our culture that have meaningless, purposeless lives and they're depressed. And I'm not talking about the physiological reasons for it, but there's psychological reasons as well. There's actually bad thinking. You can think bad things that leads to bad living. And for people that believe that there's nothing worth dying for, then that means there's nothing worth living for either. And so we have to recognize that, look, sometimes truth is not expedient. Many times truth is not expedient. Many times truth makes it harder. But do you value the truth? Do you believe it is inherently good that lies, even if it tickles people's ears and makes them feel better for a moment, that it's wrong and it's damaging. It's actually inherently bad, even if it makes somebody feel good. A spiritual leader knows that faithfulness to God's call does not mean things will come easy, but may in fact may become more difficult as a result. Number three, A spiritual leader should know that they will, capital letters, bear the brunt of other people's disappointment with God's plan. Look at verses 20 and 21. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them, and they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Wow. How painful must that have been for Moses to hear? Moses is not a selfish jerk. Moses is a loving, passionate, caring man. How do I know that? How many people would leave their positions of power, wealth, and prestige, guaranteed comfort for life? The house of Pharaoh. To side with a slave people, knowing that certain death, servitude, poverty is likely. That's the guy we're talking about. He said, I would rather give up everything I have because I see the plight of my people. These people, I'm not indifferent. I'm not like, well, stinks for them. Life's not fair. That's just how the system goes. There's winners and there's losers. Moses looks at the Israelites and says, it's worth giving up everything I have to save these people. That's how he feels about them. And that's his vulnerability. To love is to be vulnerable, and there's no way around that. So Moses is vulnerable toward these people. He loves them. He's giving up everything for them. And to hear these words must have pierced his heart. If I can paraphrase what they're saying, they're saying, Moses, you know what? We don't need the Lord to deliver us from Pharaoh. We need the Lord to deliver us from you. That's what they just said to Moses. They're blaming Moses 
May the Lord judge you for what you've done to us. That must have pierced his heart. It's like that of a parent raising a child, sacrificing everything you have, loving them, and they want to do something that's going to ruin their life. Like you know it for a fact. You know it's going to ruin their lives. And you do everything you can to stop it. And rather than thanking you, their answer to you is, I hate you. I hate that you're stopping me from doing whatever I want to do. Moses' heart must be broken. If you're a spiritual leader in any capacity, you need to know this. I don't know that you ever get used to it in the sense that it's ever going to be pleasant, but you will bear the brunt of people's complaints against God and His plan. That's how it goes. When there's someone above you, you can blame them. They're visible. They're present. We need a scapegoat. Functionally, we have scapegoats. We're blaming somebody. Somebody's blaming the government, or they're blaming this party, or they're blaming this party. We want it to go somewhere. But what happens when you're the somewhere? There is no one above you in this particular place. It's you. It all will go to you. You are the visible representation of leadership God has placed there. And so all the complaint, all the disappointment, all the anger, all the hostility will get projected onto you eventually. And Moses is experiencing this now. And I wish I could say that this is the last time it happened. But if you know the rest of the Pentateuch, you know the rest of the five books of Moses, you know this is simply the beginning of a long, long journey. The children of Israel are going to complain against Moses over and over and over again. Sometimes it's because Moses has made mistakes. Partially what we saw here. Other times, Moses has not made a mistake. He simply obeyed. And yet, because the results were hard, he bears the brunt of it anyway. It's one of the reasons why people don't want to be spiritual leaders. It is very, very hard. It's not just challenging intellectually and logistically, although I think it certainly is. It's challenging emotionally. Because if you actually love people and they complain and take things out on you, you're going to take it personally. Unless, of course, you decide not to care. And that would be sort of a safe thing to do. Don't care. But then you can't be a spiritual leader. Because spiritual leaders love the people they're leading. It's one of the key differences between a spiritual leader and a non-spiritual leader. A non-spiritual leader might be very gifted, very talented, very skilled, but they don't love you. I saw this study done on some of the top CEOs, Bill Gates and Elon Musk, and the study wanted to look at these leaders and say, hey, these are great CEOs of successful companies. What do they have in common? One of the things they all had in common, because they were quite different in other ways, one of the things they all had in common was they scored very low in empathy. They all had the uncanny, uncanny ability to not care 
how people felt. And you can kind of understand, if you want to accomplish a task, yeah, when you're whining and crying and, and you're fired and this, you know, this person lost everything, it's like, whatever, I'm just moving on. But if you actually care, then it's going to hurt. And if it hurts, it drains. And if it drains, it makes everything else you have to do, all your other responsibilities, even harder than they already were. It is very, very hard to be a spiritual leader because spiritual leaders love. Lastly, number four, a leader must learn to turn their doubts into prayers. Look at verses 22 through 23. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Can you believe Moses is talking this way to God? I think a lot of people think that you can't do this. You cannot talk that way to God. And again, I, I kind of understand. It's like, ultimately, if there was something you could do to not even feel this way, sure, do something about it. But let's be realistic. What happens when you feel this way? What does the Bible tell you to do with your why questions? Does it say to sweep them under the rug? Pretend they're not there? Does it say good little Christian boys and good little Christian girls would never dare to ask God? such a thing actually in scripture we see quite the opposite the bible invites us with our why questions into the presence of god in prayer what we see here in moses when he asks multiple questions why lord why lord and even makes a little bit of an accusation a little bit you know he's, he's careful with his language but it's implying you're not much of a deliverer this is not a one-off mistake. The entire book of Psalms invite God's people when they experience the valley of the shadow of death to come to God and to give Him our why questions. That God is not angry that you would dare ask, why did this horrible thing happen? As though God's like, how dare you ask me for this thing that's got you losing sleep and your hair is falling out and you're crying and, and your family is missing and this is going on. How dare you ask me a why question? That's the idea some people have about God, but that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a loving, practical Father who says, I know you're going to feel that way. And what I want to train you to do is to come to me with your questions. That you can give them to me. Now, sometimes we think that means, well, he's going to answer my question. We're going to see next week, it doesn't quite work that way for Moses. But what we can do is come to a God that cares about our questions. That is not pushed away by our doubts, but rather invites us in to a deeper, fuller, richer relationship as a result. I want you to think about Moses' questions as prayers. And they're prayers for these basic reasons. 
their prayers because he's talking to God. That's what praying is. Some people don't know what praying is. Actually, well, hey, I'm, I'm new to this whole Christianity thing. I'm not familiar with the Bible. And praying, that sounds like this big, complicated thing. And I probably got to read a couple manuals on, on how to do it and stuff. Let me make it really simple for you. Prayer is talking. You know how to talk. The reason we use the word prayer instead of talking is because implicit in that is the one we're addressing. Prayer is talking to God. And what Moses is sharing, he's not being disrespectful in the sense that he doesn't acknowledge who God is. What he's doing is being authentic. Scripture values people who tell the truth even when the truth is not pretty. Even when the truth is how you feel about God and what he's doing or not doing in your life. Depends on the particular scholar you can consult, but most scholars of the book of Psalms will tell you that about half the Psalms are laments. Half. More than any other genre, more than praise and adulation and exaltation, you have a record of God's people saying in so many ways, why God? If God didn't want you to say why, you wouldn't have the book of Psalms. You wouldn't have Moses recorded saying it here, at least seemingly approvingly. And I think chiefly, and think about this, if asking why was wrong, then what do we say when we see Jesus sinless, perfect, God in human flesh, on the cross, arms outstretched, nailed, naked, bleeding for you, and asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself, when he is experiencing the full brunt of evil in his humanity, is crushed and broken to the point where he has nowhere else to go. The why questions will get squeezed out of you at some point in life. And one of the things we need to know is that we are invited to do so. We are invited to make them prayers to God. Moses is learning a most valuable lesson. Because how is he going to lead the children of Israel into the wilderness where they're going to ask, why, 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 why? We should have stayed back in Egypt. Look what you've done. Or did God bring us here to just die in the desert where there are not enough graves back in Egypt that we had to travel all this way just to die? The man who is going to be able to lead the people who ask the question, why God? is the man who's learned to ask it himself. A spiritual leader must learn to turn their doubts into prayers. Looking at this story of Exodus, it is not just a historical narrative of a particular man and a particular group of people at a certain time in a certain place. In the New Testament, some of these themes and ideas and concepts become paradigms for life. 
the New Testament's going to grab on to Egypt, not as a geographic location, but as a spiritual type. In the New Testament, Egypt represents what is called the world. The fabricated system of human autonomy that says that life without God is the way that life is supposed to be lived. That's the world. And we're going to see in the New Testament that the real issue is slavery to sin. And so in Exodus 5, through the lens of the New Testament, I think we are invited to lift our eyes from the particular to the spiritual. That what's going on in Exodus is like an allegory of the Gospel, the good news of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. Egypt represents the world and Pharaoh represents the sin nature that we have all inherited, that we are born with into this world. Neither will let you go. The world will not let you go. Your sin nature will not let you go. You belong to the world and are a slave to sin. Moses here in Exodus 5 represents our inability to deal with sin and the world. Try as we might, like Moses, human effort alone cannot set us free. Like the story of the Exodus, the slave master of sin is so bad and powerful that we cannot overcome it in our own strength. In fact, we don't even know how bad the world and our sin nature actually are until they've been confronted. Here, when Pharaoh is confronted, we see that the oppression worsens. Such is the case when a sinner becomes aware of their sinful estate through the lens of God's Word. Our attempts to make ourselves right with God through our own efforts only reveal how sinful and enslaved we actually are. We finally come to a place where we recognize it will take nothing less than a miraculous act of God to set Israel free from Egypt, and even more, a miraculous act of God to set sinful men and women free from their sin. And that is exactly what we are promised in Jesus Christ. The one greater than Moses is here. The exodus greater than the historical exodus is here. The story of the first exodus is bringing Israel out of Egypt. The greater story of exodus is getting Egypt out of God's people. Getting sin and the world out of them. The bigger story is not our battle with outward forces. I know that's what we focus on. You're looking at the bills. I'm looking at the medical report. I'm looking at this relationship, this text message, this email, this bill from the IRS, these threats from this person and that person. That's what looks most real. But our bigger battle is not with these outward forces. It's the battle taking place inside. It's the battle for your own soul. The good news of the Exodus is that the one greater than Moses is here. And He loves you. And He is able to set you free. And unlike the heavy burden of sin and the world, the burden of Pharaoh, the burden of Jesus is light. 
and he offers to share the load of life with you. Jesus is not promising to take all your promises away this morning. But Jesus is promising to share them with you. That's how much he loves you. He sees you in your sin and your brokenness and your pain and your trials. And he says, I want to be yoked together with you. I want to experience all of that together. That is how much Jesus loves us. And so I want to invite you this morning to come to Jesus who offers rest for our weary souls. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for your love, for your patience, and for your grace with us. Lord, I don't even think I'm half as fast a learner as Moses was. And yet I see his doubts. I see his failures, even his disobedience. And I see that you love him. And you used him. And we are able to learn from his life in a meaningful and redemptive way. And yet our eyes are forced to look for a leader who is perfect, who doesn't sin, who does have the power to set us free. And so, Lord, we just, again, we thank You for the leaders You've put in our lives, but we humbly say that that's not enough. We need You. Those of us that are leading others, others are following us, Lord, we recognize that we are not sufficient for such things but we recognize our sufficiency for leadership comes from You. It is Your grace on our lives that makes us able. And so I just pray now in this time of response that Your Spirit would come. We've been promised the Spirit. We're not under the, mo the covenant You gave to Moses. We are under the covenant that Jesus Christ gave to us. And that means we are promised the indwelling of the Spirit that we can experience Your love and power in a way that the saints of old could only dream about. And so, Lord, let us not miss out on that due to our own neglect, but help us to press in to Your arms this morning. Enable us to bring our doubts, our why questions to You, knowing that You love us and You invite them in. And we pray that You would do a great act of deliverance in our lives for your glory, in your timing, and in your way. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.